Friends and enemies, lovers and haters, welcome to Sons and Suffers podcast. I am your host, Mario Stanley. If you enjoy Sons and Suffers podcast and you haven't already, please like, follow, and subscribe. Leaving a comment is also one of the best ways to help this podcast grow. And the biggest way you can help us get out there is by sharing this podcast and your favorite episode with your friends, your family, and your community. Hello? Hey, Bree, how are you doing? Hey, good and pretty good. How are you, Mario? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Hey, I was psyched to see you and Cameron climbing last week. How did uh, your session go? It was pretty good. Haven't been on ropes in a while. I feel like I just need to start training a little bit more again. What was that hangboard you mentioned to us? Uh, oh, it was the flashboard. And I think it's the best one because you can use it indoors. You can use it outdoors. It doesn't really matter where you use it. You can hang it on stuff. You don't have to mount it to your wall, so it's pretty dope. Oh, that's great because I feel like I can't put holes anywhere in my house, but yeah, that's awesome. Where can I get it? Uh, you can go to Tension's website, and then whenever you do, just drop in the promo code TENSIONSAS20. You'll get 20% off. You'll support the podcast, and yeah, but then they'll get it to you on the quickness. Oh, sick. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Are you guys climbing again this weekend? Yeah, I think we'll hit up uh, maybe the new... Rope gym down in the design district. Oh, the new movement is finally open. Nice. Finally, after our long wait. I know. That's a long wait, but I'm excited. Well, I'm looking forward to climbing with both of you guys, and I'll see you guys this weekend. Yeah, I'll catch you later. Bye. Check it out. My guest is Caleb. He is a brilliant photographer, marketing director of the SEC, and I think the stars align for us to meet because everyone in our cosmos, from Angela Hassler to Boone Speed, was like, you two need to meet. Caleb was in town for the World Cup of rock climbing. Yes, the first time the World Cup was on American soil was here in Dallas, Texas. He was shooting photography for the event. We had the opportunity to sit down, get together, and let me tell you, it was bromance at first sight. Maybe it was the Moscow, maybe it was the great food, but be honest with you, who cares? This episode is full of love, full of warmth, and full of friendship. Sir? Salute. Salute. Your, your cocktail skills are next level. I'm Thank gonna, you. I feel like my cooking skills are getting pretty next level. My, mm. my cocktail skills are like subpar. I have sat at the feet of masters. Okay. It's like I, I consider myself a very mediocre mixologist, but some yeah. of my friends in Chattanooga, just for fun, they'll get together and, and just create. And it's so fun to watch. I usually just sit back and I'm just present for it. But the things that they'll do and their knowledge of cocktails and flavors and ways uh, to mix things and how chemically things react to each other and 
it's it's wild and I love it. It's amazing how many random, well, not random, but how many things actually have rabbit holes yeah. that you can go down. <laughs> Climbing, yes. food, cocktails. Mm-hmm. I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. But before we dive too crazy into this, um, first and foremost, thank you for being my guest. Thanks for hanging out. And uh, who are you, where you're from, and what is your connection to the outdoors, climbing, whatever it is you like to do. Like, how did it happen? Yeah. Uh, So my name is Caleb Timmerman. I'm the marketing director for the Southeastern Climbers Coalition. Uh, Our mission is to preserve access to outdoor climbing in the Southeast for present and future generations. Um, So that's kind of the culmination of a very long journey that began with me growing up in the middle of nowhere, Georgia, with very little access to outdoor adventure sports, but I did have access to the outdoors. So I really thrived on 24 acres in the middle of nowhere. Um, But when I moved away to go to college in North Georgia, there was just enough proximity to some rock climbing in that area that some friends introduced me to rock climbing and I initially was, was very scared. I used to be terrified of heights. I hated flying planes. I hated being on a ladder. It was just not something that I did. And then rock climbing was, was kind of my cheat code. It was something that engaged me enough with the movement that I really enjoyed the problem solving. And I really enjoyed the, the way that my body could engage with something, especially in the outdoor space. Cause I got started in like our college's tiny little like plywood climbing room. Basically, basically a woody. Yeah, basically a woody. But then when my friends took me out outside for the first time, it was incredible. It was it was a different way to engage with uh beautiful outdoor spaces and I fell in love with it. And I used my fear as a catalyst for being vulnerable with myself, uh, with my friends okay. and, and used it as a way to say, okay, like let's identify this. Let's engage with it instead of hiding it, instead of running away from it, let's be vulnerable with that fear and process it and grow from it. And, and I really used that fear and that vulnerability as a way to expand my mind and my heart and my, um, uh, way of seeking adventure because I really wanted to do this. This was a cool thing that all of my cool friends were doing. And I was like, Ooh, I want to do that too. I don't want to be limited by my fear. So that, that was kind of my gateway drug into the outdoors and has just led me to, to dive deeper into the climbing community. And now that I work for a climbing nonprofit, it's an opportunity for me to engage with our climbing culture and hopefully create opportunities for other people to climb outside as well. That's awesome. What was like, was there a moment and a catalyst where you're like, all right, screw it. Let's do it. Like I'm going to embrace the fear. Was it a climb? Was it a day? Was it a thing? Like, was there a moment for it? It just, it was Mm. just, was it a slow build? No, it was not a slow build. It was very much a reactionary thing because so my personality is very much uh, fire ready aim. Uh, like I'll just do the thing yeah, yeah. and then I'll react and be like, wait, that was actually terrifying. <laughs> or that thing was actually maybe not a good idea. I just, my momentum carries me through. And then when I have the opportunity to process and I really do enjoy the processing, 
mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be able to look through, oh, like that was something that really challenged me or that was something that was really dangerous or that was something that was really risky for me. But in the moment, I'm very present and I'm able to engage with something as it is. So my first outdoor climb was really, I think, where your question is going with this. That was the catalyst for me. So what was it and where was it? It was at Sand Rock, Alabama, also known as Cherokee Rock Village. Um, And I had done very chill bouldering in Uh this woody uh, at Berry College. And my friends took me out and they were like, Hey, like you should really try lead climbing. This is super fun. So they put me on top rope first, uh, to, to try the climb so that I knew what, what that expect. was like. Yeah. yeah. And then they were like, okay, like let's explain clipping. It was very good technical training. Like we did a ground version. Mm-hmm. It was very progressional. It wasn't like they just threw me to the wolves, which in hindsight, I'm very appreciative of. Um, Cause they could have done that. They could have just been like, Oh, go for it. Yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Um, so all of that progression led to them saying, okay, like you're going to lead this route. You're going to put up the draws, put up the rope, fix the anchor. Do you feel comfortable? I was like, yeah, sure. So I just went for it and I did it. And in the moment of like being in the climb, that was so pure and enjoyable and joyful for me because I was engaging in this process that just made sense. Like I was, I was in that quote, quote flow state, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't until I reached the top that I was like, oh shit, <laughs> I'm up here. <laughs> and then I had to process the fear of having achieved that level of exposure. Okay. Yeah. So you were basically in the flow state. You were in the flow state, just flowing and rolling. And then once you clip the chains, you came out of it. Yes. And that's very much so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably, I would imagine that's fairly common for people who are trying to break into this, get over that. Um, You and I are very opposite. I was Mm. just like, let's rage. (laughs) Very much so. And like, I remember I took my first whip and they're like, are you okay? That was huge. I was like, oh, was it? I was like, oh, this is, was I supposed to be nervous? Was I supposed to be scared? (laughs) And then when I finally started doing multi-pitch and bigger walls, then I was like, oh, okay. Now I see why you're supposed to be scared. Mm, Uh, Like, I mean, don't be wrong. I've always had a healthy fear of rock climbing and a healthy Mm. dose of reality, as I guess I'd like to say it is. And this is a question for you. How long had you been climbing, lead climbing before you got to big wall level or before your first big wall experience? Uh, so let's say my first multi-pitch experience yeah, starting there. Oh, maybe nine months. Oh, wow. Oh, no, nah, dude. Oh, I, wow. Nah, dude. I'm like, like, I'm, I'm, my personality is very much, I'm either, I'm either all the way in charge. Or I'm not in charge. I'm either all the way in or I kind of like, kind of like I'll dip my toe in occasionally, but like, I'm really not involved. And so. Once I discover, I think the big thing for me is like, you know, and I've said this a lot before, but by no means did I think my life wasn't worthwhile or wasn't great or anything like that. But like, I, you know, I had the typical black kid nineties aspirations. Like I was just like happy if I didn't go to jail and I didn't get a prison record. I was Mm. like, you know, I was like, as far as I'm concerned, I'm doing well. Yeah. And so when I realized climbing could take me around the world, it was this like jaw, 
existential internal jaw dropping experience. And I guess the best way to say it is. And the reason why I use that is, is because it allowed me for the first time to expand my reality of what, not maybe not what I could do, but where I could go. And I, you know, and I've always been this kind of person of like, you know, I pay my taxes. I can go anywhere I please. I'm, no one's going to tell me otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean I didn't have a healthy fear or a dose of like going into the middle of nowhere, you know, or I was not, or I wasn't prepared to deal with, you know, you know, the dark and evil version of Billy Bob Thornton out there. <laughs> but um, the reality was, is like, once I discovered that, I was like, I can go anywhere and I can do this anywhere in the world. And so my mind just was like, well, then at that point I was like, well, I, and this is definitely operating from a place of fear and operating from a cultural place of lack. Mm. But I definitely remember early on, I was like, well, I better do as much of this rock climbing stuff as I can as soon as possible, because I'm not going to have the opportunity to do it now. Cause when I'm older, I'm not going to be able to make any money. I'm not going to make as much money. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do this. I was always these knots, these knots, these knots. I'm not, I'm not going to have this ability. Mm. While I'm young, I can make all these mistakes and I can just throw away as much of my life as possible. And in hindsight, the reality was, is I wasn't throwing away anything. I was building into it. I just mm. didn't know that because I'm not saying like, I was never a poor kid growing up, but I was not a rich kid. Mm. I was never a kid in lack, but I definitely always wanted. And I'm sure most Americans and most people are like that. The only difference between me and I think most, you know, black, I'll say black males growing up in the nineties would say this is, I just never thought it would be afforded for me to be able to have more than that. You know, the reality of seeing wealthy black men or wealthy, well-to-do this, like it was just like, that was Jack and Jill on the hill somewhere off. And, um, it just was not a thing. And then it wasn't until climbing until I started traveling the world and started meeting more people and then I started realizing like knowledge is more power, which is the silliest thing. It was said throughout my whole life. Knowledge is power. Stay off of drugs, you know, and um, it's true. And so I think, you know, this is a round, long roundabout answer, but it was shortly there, like probably nine months. It's like I went to Oklahoma, went to the Wichita Wildlife Refuge. I did Captain Crunch, which is a two pitch route, two or three pitch route. And then I did the variation of Captain Crunch, which is it's like 11C two bolt sport climb that was like 30, 40 feet. Um, and then from there, I went to Quartz Mountain and just started knocking things down. And we call that like the Yosemite of the South down here because Quartz is like just, it's scary, it's run out, it's slabby, you know, it's average, like, you know, I mean, this is probably an over exaggeration. No, maybe not. Actually, it's probably not an over-exaggeration. You know something? Whether it's an over-exaggeration, under-exaggeration, doesn't matter. <laughs> Quartz Mountain, Quartz Mountain reserve, uh, deserves reverence and respect. Mm. So I'll say it this way. On average, some people might disagree. Some people might agree. But on average, placements is a 20 to 30 foot run out in between pieces. It can oh, be yeah. up to that much. And sometimes it's like a 15 feet foot run out, but most stuff is run out. There's this route called Snake Dyke. Like for the first 40 feet, you climb with no gear and then you place one black diamond red number one, or I think it's a number one or number two, whatever it is. Can't remember right now, this exact moment. The mascal is kicking in. Um, but, uh, and then you climb like another 60 feet. And then it's like, and then there's, there's some stoppers and some thing you can place there. But and beyond the, 
the honest answer is they're a waste of time. Like you'll spend more time trying to figure out how to get this one little piece here and you can just climb to the next big piece. And mm -hmm. that's good. And that's really that area. It taught me how to be bold. Mm. And I think more than anything else it taught me, it taught me how to be calculated. And that's where I truly fell in love with rock climbing. Like, like I like big, bold, scary climbs because I like being in a zone where like mistakes are not an option. I'm just like, okay, so I have to be ready before I leave the ground. Maybe not physically, but damn sure mentally and emotionally. You know, like, um, and I think that's like, uh, that's like basically the transition for me. Like once I realized that like no one can stop me and everyone will like be for me and like all I need is a partner to belay me. I was like, get the heck out of my way. I mm -hmm. was ready to fly. <laughs> that's mm. awesome. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for asking. It's not yeah. every day I get asked questions on my own show. Yeah. Yeah. I know. So, um, how did you eventually transition and working in for the SEC, SEC? And then can you tell me what the SEC really is? Like, do you know like how it started? Cause I think most people are familiar with like the access fund, mm -hmm. American Alpine club, and then their local, uh, local climbing affinity or not affinity, but local climbing like groups or nonprofits. But the SEC is kind of like this. I feel like, the SEC is kind of like this 800 pound gorilla that came out of nowhere in the last like six to seven years. No, maybe that like five years ago, like five years, because I remember probably when I first started putting myself out there on social media and the gram, I don't remember who it was, but it, I think I'd have to look, but I want to say I was talking to someone from the SEC about potentially coming down and speaking or doing some stuff like that or whatever. I mean, it might've been someone else, another group, but I just remember remembering like, what is this and who are these people? And then all of a sudden, like within like three or four years, you see like SEC, this chapter, this, this event, this, this, this rebolting, doing this, doing this. And I'm like, you guys, you know, you went from like, you know, a small little, a, a small little organization to this behemoth that protects serves and really just does everything for the climbing community and it just it seemed like it just blew up and so yeah can you give me a like uh like tell people like what it is and where is it from and like how did it start i would love to yes oh man so um i'll back it up a little bit more than the question itself so i'll share my personal climbing story that kind of dovetails into me Hit joining it. the SEC. Hit me. So I started climbing in 2011 mm -hmm. when I was in college. Little baby climber, just experiencing the outdoors and climbing for the first time and starting to learn like, oh, like this is how you prepare to go bouldering. Like you try to find a guidebook if there's a guidebook. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at what the approach is like. You try to figure out what kind of gear you need. Novice level like... Mm -hmm very much trying to just figure it out as I go. So for the first few years, my climbing experience was very insulated to myself and the few people that I knew who also rock climbed. And that was it. That was my whole climbing world was that small circle of people. And then as time went on, I started to learn, oh, more people do this thing. Like it's not mm -hmm. just this niche 
it's still niche, but it's not just yeah. like the five people that I know who's <laughs> doing this thing. There are people who do this literally all over the world. Yep. Which is pretty cool to discover that, that you have a shared experience with people everywhere. So then I started to learn, oh, like there are, there's history here. There are uh, groups and organizations built around this sport. That's pretty cool. Um, and then I started to, to think about transitioning from where I was living at the time. So I okay. was living in Rome, Georgia, and, and really wanted to move somewhere with good climbing access because Rome doesn't really have very much in it. You have to drive a couple hours to find something good. Okay. So I was like, okay, I want to live somewhere where in close proximity there is climbing. I want to move somewhere where there's good culture, good community. Um, so it was my three C's, climbing, culture, and community. And I landed on Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was relatively close to where I was living at the time. I knew a few people who were there. So I was like, okay, I can build a good community here. And oh my God, the climbing. So much good bouldering, trad, sport. Oh yeah. Um, just a lifetime, multiple lifetimes worth of climbing. So I was like, okay, Chattanooga, that's where I'm headed. So when I moved there, um, I just took, an application. I moved there without a plan. I did. I had nothing. I didn't have a place to live. I didn't have a job. I just moved there. And I started taking a stack of applications to every business I could find. I was like, I'm a photographer. I have a marketing degree. Uh, I'll do anything. Hire me. And I walked into the local climbing gym, High Point, and turned in my application. The general manager hired me on the spot. And I eventually became the marketing manager there. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a couple of years, we come to 2020, the bane of all of our existence. Yeah, uh, <laughs> COVID. What a time. Um, but I was furloughed twice from Ooh. the gym. Um, and during my second round of being furloughed, the, a friend of mine, Andrea Hassler, mutual, mutual homie of ours, Andrea uh, shout out. Um, she knew the position that I was in and just brought over a bottle of mezcal and was like, Hey, I want to offer you a job. I don't know anything about marketing. Uh, I knew about the SEC by that time, um, because of being in the climbing community in Chattanooga. Yeah, yeah, but sense. I, I was like, Oh, like that's just a small little organization over there that they are a nonprofit about climbing. I didn't really know much more than that. So Andrea comes to me and says, Hey, like I'll let you write your own job description and then I'll hire you. Would this be something that you would be interested in? And I said, yes, 1000%. I am in no questions asked. I, I, I accept. Um, so that night I wrote my own job description and started working for the Southeastern climbers coalition. I feel like climbing is one of the few industries where that is a thing. Climbing, especially now, has been like a startup. It's funny you say that because some at the gym I work for, there are so many people who have come through it. And that's one of the things I've said to them. And I don't know if it's that way anymore because there's some, you know, some big changes that have happened. But for so long, I've said that to people. They're like, I really want to do this. I'm like, write your job description you want to have. Mm -hmm. Then go to the owners and then show them why it has value. Yeah. And then the most important thing, show them why the gym, the community, and they 
need it. Mm-hmm. Not they want it, but they need it. And I've watched so many job titles and so many things be created in my like, you know, almost 20 year stats of coaching and climbing and being in this industry. It's been, it's the, it just warms my heart to hear you say that. Yeah. So like it was, it was a special opportunity because it was the, for, for me, it was the first time that I had the chance to forge something for myself. Whereas before that, mm-hmm. I'd had a lot of really cool opportunities, but it was very much fitting myself into a mold that was pre-existed. Um, but this was something that I could create for myself. And I, I entered into it with a lot of stoke and a lot of expectation for uh, this, this really big desire in my heart to serve the climbing community. Because... I, over the the 10 years that I've been climbing, have gained so much through the gift that is our community. Yeah. And I, I wanted to give back and I wanted to do something for that community. So I saw this as a chance to do that. And one of the main ways that I have, have been able to do that through the Southeastern Climbing Coalition is by telling the story of people who have come before me. So the SCC has been around since 1993, right? Okay. It's, it's not a young organization. It's been around. And it began uh, basically out of necessity. So two climbing areas specifically were under threat, uh, a place called Sunset Rock and a place called Boat Rock. So Sunset Rock, which is in Chattanooga, uh, is a national park, but it is in close proximity to a lot of private homes. And so climbers, especially in the early nineties, were very much rowdy bunch, uh, seen as just hoodlums. And so all of the wealthy homeowners in the area were like, we don't want your kind around here, uh, and pulled their influence basically with the national park to start having the conversation of banning rock climbing there. And the rock climbers at the time were like, no, no, you can't do that. So they rallied together and said to the national park, Hey, like we are a legitimate user group. What do we need to do to protect our access to the rock climbing here? Cause it's world-class. Some of the best trad climbing in the South. So women sunset park. Yes. I don't know why I've never, I've never heard of this place or climbed there. It's stellar. Oh, it's so good. It's one of Andrea's favorite places. Oh, yeah. okay. So, okay. Again, shout out Andrea. Oh um, my gosh. It's, it's beautiful. It's really good bullet hard sandstone crack climbing. Um, is it part of, is it a part of the Appalachians? No. So technically Chattanooga is in the Cumberland Plateau. Okay. And my friend Kyle is probably going to tear this apart because he's, my scientist friend and he knows everything about that area geologically speaking um to my layman's knowledge it is part of the cumberland plateau um but all that to say uh they went to the national park service and essentially started volunteering thousands of hours to build trails uh do stonework clean up trash clean up graffiti and after said thousands of hours, the National Park Service essentially like wrote it into their park 
manifest oh. that rock climbing is officially a a sanctioned use they of put the some, park. They put straight sweat yes. equity into that. Yes. That was some sweat Very equity. Very much so. Because they cared. Yeah. They gave a damn about this place that they loved and they weren't going to let it go okay. without a fight. Yeah. Yep. So that was iteration number one of kind of rallying together the community for, for a very specific cause. So that was kind of the birth of the SEC that said, okay, access is not free. Rock climbing is not free. We have to step up to preserve the climbing areas that we care about. Okay. Um, so iteration number two, after a couple of years of forming this sanctioned group, uh, as the SEC, uh, really in name only, uh, there was a bouldering area in Atlanta, Georgia called Boat Rock. Which is, I know very well. Yes. It's classic. Yeah. Um, and it, it's been climbed on for decades, like even before the 90s, like way back into the 60s, I think. Mm -hmm. um, people were climbing there. Um, the, this housing development started to purchase up the property and actively started to destroy the boulders in order to make space for homes. Uh, there's this great photo um, by Andrew Kornilak. He's, he's one of my favorite photographers. Um, he took this photo of some boulders on these beautiful granite boulders. And in the background, there's an excavator like actually tearing up boulders. It's the same photo. It's like these, these people are climbing, oh enjoying these beautiful boulders. And in the background are other boulders that are just getting demolished. So again, the SEC, the community of climbers had to rally together to step up and say, hey, like, this is not okay. We are a sanctioned user group. Climbing is important to us and this community. What do we need to do to preserve these rocks, preserve access to this rock climbing? The developers didn't care. They're, they cared about their bottom line and they cared about developing the property. So we had to take a different tactic. So instead of volunteering and building goodwill and a good reputation, we just straight up bought the property. So they, they fundraised uh, thousands of dollars to, to purchase the property and save the boulders. And in order to do that, they... They couldn't just put it under someone's name, so they uh, got a 501c3 status for the SEC, and that was when we officially became a nonprofit um, that was able to hold land. So that those two experiences, the the first like real rallying cry of Sunset, and then the actual official. Uh, creation of our nonprofit as an entity, a public entity, were the two things that really began our journey as an organization to say, this is a need, especially on the East Coast, because there is so much land that is privately owned. There's not a lot of public land. Yeah, it's welcome um, to Texas. It, same yeah, thing. Yeah, same thing. It is critical that we have people and infrastructure in place mm -hmm. to preserve access to rock climbing. Because left to its own devices, it's private land. So people are just going to keep buying and selling and buying and selling. Yeah, they're going to do whatever they land. They're going to do whatever they want with it because it's their land. Agreed. Um, 
So our job as an organization is to create things like easements, uh, memorandums of understanding, just a lot of unsexy legal jargon and infrastructure that's in place in order to do the very sexy thing of rock climbing. Um, I, I joke with our executive director all the time that we need to make logistics sexy again because it's those infrastructure pieces that allow us to enjoy these wild places that we love. It's funny. It's like nothing would get done without copywriters or no underwriters Mm -hmm. who like buying a home and all this other stuff. That's where like the stuff gets, that's the dirty work. Mm -hmm. It's that's so wild to me. Like, like I never really knew that I, I know of that photo you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think I've seen it once in my life and we're gonna have to Google it and find it. Yeah. It's uh, on my wall in my office. I look at it every day because oh I mean, my, that's, are there prints of it that someone can buy? Uh, I'll have to ask Andrew. Oh I, he's a homie and he's like, he was one of the early founders of the SEC. So when oh I asked him God. for a print for the office, he was like, oh yeah, of course. Um, I would love to buy a large yeah. frame, a large format print. Yeah. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out. I don't That'd know. That would be dope. Andrew, if you're listening. Oh, Andrew. Mario wants. Andrew, do you want to be a guest? And <laughs> Mario wants. Yeah. Um, but no, I think that's wild because like, I don't know, it really, when you were talking about it, like the, the old phrase of like starting a business kind of came in mind. Like you, you, you form, you storm, you norm, and then you perform. Whoa. And it's like, it's a classic thing for like, it's how I started my guiding company. It's how I started every business. Yeah. Form, storm, norm, and perform. And the reality is, is like you form because you discover a need, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a need, there's a service, there's a want, there's something that you want to do. And then, uh, you know, and then you go through the storm of it all because you honestly have no clue what you're doing. Like I, I would say I am a very good front of house businessman. I am a very good at that, but the back office, like I, you know, my life got so much easier when I could finally afford to hire a CPA. Like it was, I was literally, I was like, this is what it's not like to not have stress, you know? And it's like, this is what it's not like to feel like every body in my joint, every bone in my body aches when taxes come around. And it's like, you know, and then you kind of eventually, you know, as I said, form, storm, then you normalize and then you start kind of getting your grooves. And I think that's like, you know, after your thousand hours, after thousands and thousands of hours of work and that's it. And then you guys realize you, in order to really perform and in order to be scalable, that's where the birth of that. And it was boat rock that really kind of brought that through, which, mm. you know, I don't know. I feel like it's like kind of synonymous. Cause like you say boat rock, then it like, you guys had to form something and save it. So it's kind of like Noah's Ark in a way where it just started. <laughs> Cause if not, the whole thing was going to be washed away and yeah. destroyed. So yeah. I don't know. I'm getting biblical. Maybe it's my seminary background, but. <laughs> It's funny. It's not funny. It's, it's tragic. So we, ho- we host this climbing competition every year at Bow Rock called Float the Boat to raise money and continue to support uh, protecting access to outdoor climbing areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this event has been going on in some form or fashion even before the SEC began. I think it was just a Southeastern climbing competition and, and uh, Brooke Rabatou's mom, Robin, used to compete in it uh, um, or, or did and like completely crushed everyone. I'm sure. Um, when she competed. 
Uh, shout out to Robin and Brooke. Please come to Float the Boat 2023. Oh, uh, anyway. When is the dates? What are the dates for that? Uh, it's typically January, February. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, when it's cold, when it's crisp. Yeah. Um, I was about to say, because that's not the place to climb during the summer. No, 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 no. Atlanta is not the place Terrible. to climb in the summer. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because some of the, the older climbers who've been climbing there since the 60s, they come to float the boat every year and they're like, oh, this is great. This is special. This is wonderful. But man, there were some classic boulders that aren't here anymore. That like classic lines, some of the best climbing that was there was destroyed. And it's heartbreaking to think about that because they got to enjoy and, and find fulfillment in those climbs. And, and you reach a certain point with climbing where you, you go one of two ways. You either want to be a, 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 a click or a club or, or very private about it mm-hmm. or secretive about it, or you want to be a super sharer. You want to like spread the word, spread the love, spread the joy of climbing. And a lot of these guys were the type of people who wanted people to enjoy the climbing that they did and enjoy the climbing that they established. And, and people aren't going to get to enjoy that. Yeah. I think that's the heart of a developer. I mean, that's why I I like to bolt and establish lines. Like the coolest feeling I've ever had is someone is like, yo, they walked up to me in the gym. Like, dude, I climbed your line. I was like, oh, I was like, okay. So I got to ask you. And they're, uh, so I'm like, I I look at them like, so I got to ask you. And before I can finish my sentence, they're like, you're a complete jerk because between bolt four and bolt six, like between bolt four and bolt five. And I'm like, I know, but it isn't, it so good. And they're like, yeah. it's terrible, but it's so good. And it's like, those are moments that you just, there are these weird finite moments that like, they cannot be shared. And I think that like we were, when we were talking about like our climbing experiences earlier and how we got into it earlier, this thought also popped in my head, but the two things about rock climbing, I think that are just so unique. One from a developer standpoint of view is like someone talking about your route and the experience that they had and knowing that like it's consistent or it's a little different. There's everyone climbs differently, but like it's this beautiful experience and you hear people talk about it. And the second thing of it is, is especially on a multi-pitch or on a larger route is I don't know. I've always thought about this, but like when you're sitting at the top of the chains and you turn around, it's so cool to know that only maybe a couple hundred or thousand people in the entire planet have ever enjoyed this view. Dude, or I think about this been all the this. time. I think about this all the time. Like, yeah. Cause like when you're sitting at the top of that thing, you're like, how many people have ever been here? You know? And I wish there was a way, uh, actually, no, I take this back. I don't want to know. I really don't want to know. I want to find out organically. I want to continue. I don't want some digital tracker that tells me this. Granted, I love all that stuff and I think it's great and it helps me get better at my own rock climbing. You know, shout out to Kaya. They do an amazing job and I think they are, I think single-handedly they're going to be one of like, play a big role in the future of climbing. Um, But it is just so cool to like, one of the greatest interactions I ever had was was sitting in the airport and I met the guy who helped his buddy bolt Texas Hold'em, which is in Black Velvet Canyon. And he was like, Oh yeah. He's like, I just, he's like, yeah, I bolted that route back. I was like, Oh my God. I was like, I was like, what crack cocaine were you guys doing 
when you came up with that dihedral overhanging pitch, he's like, well, it was the only way to go. Everything else looked real sketch. And I'm like, I, I, I get it. But still, I was like, you know, you had to be on one to lead that. And he was, and they were like, but it's glorious, isn't it? I was like, it's so glorious. Wow. And um, yeah. And these are like experiences that I don't know. The only other people that I know that like truly understand these experiences is I would say is kayakers are people who do water sports. Mm. I'm not saying mountain bikers and trail runners and hikers don't have this experience, but I think there's a certain level of like, unless you're like doing like really challenging mountain biking routes, but like there's a certain level of like, there's a certain level of dedication, commitment, tenacity, and grit that it takes to get to these places. And I really think like whitewater sports and climbing, this is where like they kind of definitely meet. Like it's just, you know, those climbs are so unique and those rivers are so unique and there will never be anything else like it. And the reason why I put those two things together because they were not made by us. They were climbed by us. They were navigated by us, but they were not made by us. And I think that is one of the reasons why they are so sacred mm. and they are so important to protect because you just can't make it. I don't care how hard you try. I've worked in a climbing gym. My, I'm like most of my professional career and you, I don't care what anybody says. You just cannot make that. Yeah. And it's magical. I think that's part of why it's so important that our mission state. So Southeastern climbing yeah, yeah. and our mission statement says preserve, not protect, not safeguard. It says preserve. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Like we can't make more climbing areas. No, we can't make more land. It is a very finite resource. And because it is finite, we have to recognize that if anything happens to it, it's gone. Or it at least is fundamentally different from what it was. And that preservation mindset is, is something that we have to make engaging for people because it's, it's too easy to lift up and laud conservation on its own merits and say, oh yeah, like this is important. It's important because it's important. Like you should care because it's important. Mm -hmm. And, and you, you, that doesn't track with people. You have to find a way to get them to fall in love with it. And mm. you have to find a way for them to have and cultivate a personal experience with it. And, and that's something that I care very deeply about because, I mean, my background's in marketing. Uh, my, my experience is in photography. And it's all about finding ways to build qualitative experiences for people mm -hmm. um because that's what turns into action yeah, yeah and i think it's been really cool and and i feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to tell the stories of very influential people in southeastern climbing uh since i joined the team because that is what has gotten people's attention nationally yeah um it's what's taken us from a we we call it <laughs> we call it shadow work 
like behind the scenes work. We call it like, oh, like for the past 30 years, we've been quietly just doing the work. But now I think we're at a point where it's really important for people to know what those stories are so that they can become active participants in the preservation of climbing. Because we all know climbing's blowing up. We all know climbing is yeah, huge. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's, it's a, I don't have to tell you what the industry is doing. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't have to tell other people because people know, people get it, people see yep. it. Yep. What we have to do is take that growth and guide it and direct it in a positive direction because left to its own devices, it's going to burn itself out. It's going to Truth. Uh, take advantage and, and uh, be a consumer of all of the climbing that we have. And there's, there's so many potential consequences from overuse and uh, loving things to death, I think is a, is a, is a phrase that's been coined recently. Yeah. I think it's a cross between, you know, extreme ownership, like own, like you want people to, it's this weird, I, I really like your example of falling in love because I mean, I, I don't know, you, you know, romantic passes we haven't talked about and we probably <laughs> won't talk about on air because that's that red light special. Yeah, I want that. And, you know, that's like, I don't know. We'll start a Patreon for that level. Sense and Suffers Underground. Ooh. But um, there is this weird fine line between extreme ownership and love. And I think the thing is, is what we are trying to do is to get our community to dance this line of like utterly, absolutely, madly, head over heels almost to the point blindly falling in love with something, but at the same time owning it and owning it requires discipline, requires discipline, attention, intent. And I think probably one of the most important things that discipline, that ownership requires is detail. And I know this is like really kind of like this really broad thing, but like, hear me out here. It's like, if you are in love with someone, they want your love to be disciplined, to be patient, to be kind, to be intentional. They want you to know the little details. They want you to know when you walk through the room, they want you to know that when they walk through the room, whether they had a good day or a bad day without saying something, I don't know. I mean, I'll speak for myself for this, but I know like the most powerful moment for me in any relationship is when I can walk through the moment and walk through the room And, you know, my lady will just know that I just need to like sit on the couch, put my head in her lap. And I just need to just like, just like have a place that feels perfectly safe, perfectly, perfectly. Like I I can just fully let down my guard. And the reality is, is the spaces that we love are in a constant place where they can never do that. And it's our job and is our mission realistically as climbers if people who truly love these spaces, it's like, that's the line that we're trying to balance. We're trying to balance of like letting these places fur- flourish, as you say, preserve, uh, as preserve them, letting them flourish, letting them grow, letting them fall, letting mountains collapse, letting these things just naturally happen. But at the same time, unabashedly, uncontrollably, but temperedly love them to the point where we let them be the way they need to be 
but we protect them in every way possible. And it's this weird, fine balance. And I think if you're someone who is really exploring your own emotional bandwidth, and I think if you're someone who's really exploring your own self, I think you can kind of understand where I'm trying to go with this. And it's complex. And I think life is complex in itself, but I think that's the beauty of it. It's like, we are trying to preserve nature and nature and life is complex in itself. So this is a process, as you talked about before, even your process of getting over being afraid of heights and getting over this, this is going to be an ongoing thing. And I'm excited to know that, like, I think that's really cool with the SEC's mission statement. I think that's unique. Um, I don't remember the American Alpine Clubs right now. I feel terrible because I was like the president of the local club for a little while. And I feel like I should remember, but that's what the internet's for. And um, I don't know. I, I, I'm psyched. I do want to take a quick little, we need, I feel like we need a, a, a Moscow re-up. Refill, baby. And then we're Osco. And then I'm going to take a quick break here. But um, and then I also want to ask you how you broke your leg. Oh, but, 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 do, we, do we do that story before or after the break? After the break. <laughs> Come back after the break to hear how Caleb broke the fuck out of his leg. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> All right, friends and enemies and lovers and haters, y'all about to hate on me hard. But the next episode will be the continuation of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the history of Chattanooga, the history of the SEC, and really what climbers have had to fight for, what we've had to negotiate, and really most importantly, what we have had to do, to come together, to grab the mantle of protecting these wild spaces and keeping them the way that they are and let them take their natural course. And now I ask you to take your natural course straight to that like, subscribe, and comment button and naturally just send out this podcast to all your friends and family just as you would breathe in and breathe out because we need your help to grow. So thank you for listening. And I am so excited to share the next episode with you because it gets so much better. And remember, if you're not suffering, are you even sending at all? Still, still not, yo, yo.